Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Today's text is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. Um, If you have one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it is on page 810. You have, heard it that you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would bless this reading from your word, um, and that from from here you would bless um, the the teaching of your word, um, the the, the proclamation um, of the gospel um, that that really accompanies um, every every word and every letter um, of the scriptures, um, that we, we read and we understand um, and we hear what your word has to say through the lens um, of the work that Christ has accomplished uh, for, for sinful people. Um, and so, Lord, I pray today um, that, that ultimately your, your name would be glorified, um, that your word would be faithfully preached, um, that the saints in the room would be equipped um, for, for the work of the ministry, um, and through your word, equipped uh, for, for every good work. Um, and, and so, Lord, we, we trust you with that. We need your, your Holy Spirit um, to, to be who helps our hearts to understand. Um, may, may we, through this text today um, and through the content that, that, we, that we ponder, um, really believe the truth that Jesus is, is better. Um, Jesus is better um, than, than the things that we, we often Look to uh, for for satisfaction. Um, may may we find complete satisfaction and hope um, in Christ, because Christ is better. Uh, we pray these things in the name of of Jesus. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Hey, welcome to church today. <laughs> uh, this this text that that we are, are going to be preaching through today um, is a little bit heavy. Um, we've, we've, I, I, I feel like we've, we've kind of led up to, um, to this today by, by letting you know, uh, some of the content that would be preached. We're not going to preach much outside, um, of what, of what Christ has to say here, because we believe that Christ's word is sufficient. Uh, but we are going to, we are going to consider some, some things today, um, that may be relevant to, uh, to our lives today and our, and our, uh, through, through the lens of our culture. And so really thank you for, for being here today. And we, we look, I, I have been studying this all week and look forward to, to sharing the hope, um, that accompanies this. And so a little over one year ago, um, I sat around my kitchen table at my house, uh, with a group of men that are here in this room today. Um, not all of them are here today, um, but but not because of not because of anything other than just uh, they're not here today. Uh, but I, I sat around uh, my my kitchen table, um, and I confessed to them 
uh, that, that I had, had dealt with a pattern of destructive sin in the area of lust on and off over the last eight to nine years. Wow, that's not something you thought you'd hear from a pulpit, did you? Uh, but I confessed to, to a group of men um, this, this thing, and I wish I could tell you that once after I told them that, that the desire and the, and the sin just completely went away. Uh, but it didn't. Um, it, it did not. Um, that's, that's oftentimes the way that sin works. It has such a deep hold on you um, that you've really got to lean into the power of God and lean into the grace of the Spirit of God um, and the sufficiency of the Son of God uh, to, to overcome some things that have a grip on us. Th- though it may have not gone away immediately, the desire and the temptation, um, what it did do was mark the beginning of a process that, that I believe um, that God has allowed me to experience some profound and miraculous victory in. Um, and, and so that's the good news. That's some good news here. And so this, this all may not be something that you have heard come from many pulpits, right? This, this is the last guy that's supposed to struggle with things like what we're going to talk about. But it is something that I believe necessary to share with you today for, for three particular reasons. I've got three particular reasons why I wanna share this with you. The first is this is the relevance of lust, um, the, the relevance and the pervasiveness of, of lust in the lives of men and women, by the way, uh, men and women who are here in this room um, and in our culture. There's not a person in this room that's not affected by this. Um, we, we won't go into all the possible scenarios and all of your possible stories um, and all of those things, but the subject that we will cover today is not uncommon among us. The second reason why I share this is for, the, for uh, the, the sake of community. Like I said, a year ago, I shared this with a group of men in this church. Um, and it was, a, it was a moment of vulnerability for me. It was a moment of spirit wrought courage um, that, that he produced in me. And so, so I, I want us to look at this through the lens of community um, because here's the thing. I believe that if you are struggling with this, if this is an area of sin in your life, you can be healed of this. But you cannot be healed of this in isolation. Just know um, that if you feel driven into isolation, the, 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 the fun cultural excuse is I'm an introvert, right? I mean, we all, we all love the introvert excuse these days. Like, I'm just, I'm just an introvert. Hey, let me just say, if you're an introvert, that is not an excuse for you to be disobedient to what God has called you into in community with people. And so you may be an introvert, you may be an extrovert, but God has called you to, to walk life with one another. It is, it is ultimately a result and presence of sin in the world that drives us into isolation. Um, it, was, it was sin in the garden that drove Adam and Eve into their isolated areas when before they, they enjoyed full and free exposure to one another in lots of different areas. And it was sin that drove them into isolation. Church family, you need others and others need you. This particular thing may not be a struggle for you, but it is for someone in here and it is for someone in your community. You need others and others need you and you will get out of community what you pour into it. So maybe you find yourself lately, like let's, let me just talk specifically about community groups for a minute. Maybe you find yourself lately, I'm not really getting much out of this. Well, let me just encourage you in a way 
to say, you get out of it what you pour into it. And maybe, just maybe, at least in my own experience, one of the ways to take your group to a deeper level is to obey the word of God and to confess your sins one to another. I'm not saying you have to you know, put it on public display and all those things. You figure out what that looks like. But you will get out of community what you pour into. And then thirdly, so relevance, the relevance of it, um, community is why I share it. And then thirdly is the aspect of hope. Let me just tell you this, church family, what we're gonna deal with today is a little bit heavy and it's personal, but there is victory in this area. There's, there's victory in this. Um, I can remember the main driving destructive thought in my mind was there's no way out of this. How, how could my desires in this area possibly change? It, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands, but have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt the weight and the reality of how could my desires possibly change? And let me just tell you, the Bible says your desires can change. The Holy Spirit within you can change your desires. And, and, the, and the lie that you are believing that there's no way out of this and there's no victory in this is a lie straight from hell itself. It's a lie straight from hell. The lie will destroy you. It will destroy your family. It will destroy our society. It will wreck you. The only lies of Satan that have any power over us are the ones that you allow yourself to believe. You realize that, Christian, right? That the lies of Satan have no power over you unless you believe them. They, they just don't because you're a child of God. And if you're a child of God and Satan's lies have power in your life, it's because you're believing them and you're not believing the gospel. You're not believing what God is able to do in you. And so I've got a quick thing to say to those in the room who may be on the other side of this. Maybe you're feeling the weight of, yeah, I'm really dealing with this or I've dealt with this. But, but there's, 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 by the way, in, in sin, there's, there's it, your, we won't get into this much today, your sin never only affects you. And so this is especially one of those areas, it's just me, it's just my personal sin, it doesn't affect anybody else. Your sin never only affects you. In fact, it never only affects just two people, it probably affects a lot of people. Um, but so, so let me say something to those in the room who may be on the side of the one who has, who has um, experienced the betrayal by one who has dealt with a particular area of lust. Let me say this, God can also heal your heart. God can also heal the pain that you feel from the betrayal, the lies, and the, and the, and the areas where you feel unseen. God can heal your heart. And, and I say this in a gracious way. Sometimes the only one believing the lie is not the one who's guilty of the sin. Sometimes those of you who've been offended are also believing the lies of Satan that you just have to hold on to this. And you remember what happened. You remember, you remember this, but God can heal your heart. He can restore what has been broken. And let me just tell you this. I'm gonna say this confidently and boldly because the word says it. God can also enable you to forgive that person. He can, he can enable you to forgive them, to, to say, you know what? I am hurt, but I forgive you. And to really, really in a profound way experience some freedom in this. And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna pray together um, and then I wanna look at this text. Father, we, we thank you for your word and um, really the, the, the eternal relevance that, that your word has. Um, if any of us 
in this room have, have questioned the relevance of your word, um, this text today really, um, in, a, in, in really a shocking kind of way, um, proclaims to us that, that your word does have eternal relevance. And so, Lord, we, we say that, not lightly, we say that because the reason why we feel the relevance of this text is because, because Lord, this is, a, this is a, a, an, an area of our lives and of our culture and of our world um, that is just so prevalent. And so, Lord, would you just help us to, to take on your vision, um, your, your idea um, for what... Um, for, for what and who we are supposed to be. We praise you, um, and we, we give our time to you this morning. In your name, amen. Okay, so Matthew chapter five, verse 27 through 30. Again, if you, if you don't have a Bible, you need one. Um, this isn't a, a time for you just to sit and listen. I want you to engage with the text. Um, and so Matthew five twenty-seven through 30, we're gonna read that again, um, and then we're just gonna walk through the text. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And so Jesus opens up by saying this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And so as Jesus has already established, we talked about this a few weeks ago, as Jesus has already established in his teaching on anger, um, what he is confronting and correcting here is not the scriptures. Jesus is not correcting the scriptures. Um, So let's just get that out of the way. Um, He's not correcting the scriptures. Um, what he is what he is correcting and confronting is a narrow application and what I believe an intentional misinterpretation of what the scriptures say by the religious leaders. Jesus is addressing the religious leaders' narrow and, and incorrect interpretation um, of, of, of those religious leaders. And so how might this particular point have been narrowly applied and intentionally misinterpreted? Well, we don't exactly know all of those answers, but... Again, what we can't miss first and foremost is that the scriptures actually do say this in Exodus chapter 20. So we know that Jesus, again, is not correcting the scriptures because Jesus quotes Exodus 20, 14 that says, you shall not commit adultery. And so what we can at least gather from Christ's teaching in this passage here is that these religious leaders had understood the law of God as something that they must only submit themselves to externally. So... They had taken anger and they said, okay, or they had, taken, they had taken murder and they said, okay, as long as we don't drive a knife through the guy that we don't like, we're good. And Jesus confronts that. If you wanna kind of hear that, you can go back a few weeks and listen to, to our teaching on that. And so they had kind of done the same thing. As long as I don't physically, geographically go to the place where this person is that I have desire for, then, then I ought to be good. And so these religious leaders had understood the law of God as something they must only submit themselves externally. And, and we've got to give it to them, y'all. <laughs> I mean, we, we kind of have to give it to these guys because they did really well at, at achieving that goal. 
Um, in fact, Jesus himself acknowledges, you guys are doing really well at this external thing in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27 and 28, where he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So Jesus even, in a way here, kind of gives it to them. You guys are, gives them the benefit, not the benefit of the doubt. He just, he just almost like this, this uh, subtle insult slash compliment. Like you guys are, you guys look really good on the outside, but on the inside, man, you're, you're dead of, you're, you're full of dead man's bones. And so Jesus goes on to say, this is what you've heard said. And then he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Firstly, don't miss how incredibly remarkable and profound it is that Jesus says, but I say to you. Um, And in the Old Testament, prophets would speak on behalf of the Lord. And what would they say? Thus says the Lord. They were a mouthpiece for God. They would say, here's what God says that, I'm, that, that he's telling me to tell you. But here, Jesus doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He essentially says, I, the Lord, say. I am the Lord, and I say this. Jesus sets his own authority on the same plane as the Father's authority. He says, I am the Lord, and this is what I say as the Lord. He establishes his authority of his word and his interpretation up over the authority of the religious leaders. Man, these were the people that God's people looked to to hear what it was that God taught and God said. And Jesus saying, they're teaching you wrong. But I, the Lord, will say to you this. And this is what he says. In fact, Matthew 7, 28 and 29, I love the way, really the way the sermon wraps up, the, the, the narrative on the Sermon on the Mount wraps up in Matthew 7. It says, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus was teaching with a level of authority and he's proclaiming himself that his word is to be viewed on the level of the word of the father. And that's the, the authority with which he speaks. And so what is it that Jesus says? What is it that our Lord says? He says that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There seems to have been some loophole or provision within the common teaching and interpretation of the law by these religious leaders that let folks off the hook simply for avoiding the physical and external act of adultery. That's what we see here. And so when it came to this specific act, when it came to the specific act of, of adultery, they looked pretty good and pretty pure, didn't they? There was nothing going on, on on the outside that would have caused people to say they are guilty in this area. And in fact, when it comes to the act today, many of us in this room are also doing pretty well, aren't we? But Jesus is going after our hearts this morning. He's going after our hearts and he's going after our minds. He's going after what often doesn't, if we can just be honest, what often doesn't happen in public. What often can't be, I mean, maybe it can be like if you're the the FBI, but it really can't be traced, 
right? I mean, he's really going after something here. And he's, Jesus himself, by the way, is exposing us. That's not the friendly Jesus you thought you had, is it? I mean, Jesus, you've got the, the Jesus that you come on Sundays and he just kind of lets you do your thing and then the rest of the week and then we'll, we'll get there on Sunday and, and everything will be fine. But what Jesus begins to uncover here is the real intent of the law. He uncovers the real intent of the law. And that is in its focus and goal of transforming our heart and not only our external behaviors. Can I tell you something? When you read the law in the Old Testament, it's, it's never void or dismissive of, a, of an internal transformation. And so maybe you think, well, the Old Testament law is about just clean up the outside and then Jesus comes and then he talks about... Trend. No, God, what Jesus is saying here is that God in his original law and his original giving of the law was always after a transformed heart. It's not some new teaching, not some new idea that now we've got to start cleaning up our hearts. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. What he's saying in this text. And so simply put, if we look at someone, and by the way, look what the text says. It doesn't just say look. What does it say? At least my text. Um, Depending on what version you have, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, if we look at someone with lustful intent, we are guilty of adultery. We are guilty. And this, as Jesus is gonna say later, this is an offense that separates us from a holy God. Now, we'll say, we'll say this again in just a little bit. It's not the unpardonable sin. We'll, we'll get to that here in just a few minutes. Remember what I said, you can be healed. We can, we can experience victory and healing in this area. But for now, Jesus is, is letting us know that this is a serious offense. And so here's, here's what I wanna do with, our, with the majority of our time today. I wanna, I wanna address some of the reasons why what Jesus says here is important. And I am gonna pull a little bit back out from this text. And we're gonna kind of look at a, a really just a, what we'll call like a biblical theology of, of, of this topic. And so I wanna address the reason why what Jesus says here is important. And, and, and what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna appeal to three things. I'm gonna appeal to three things. I'm gonna appeal to creation, we're going to appeal to the image of God and we're going to appeal to God's design for human sexuality, okay? Um, this is why Jesus is saying here what he's saying. Like I said, these three topics are fundamental, not just for this week, but for next week as well. So if you're a little uncomfortable today, we're gonna to be uncomfortable for the next two weeks. That's fine because there's hope, gospel. Always remember that, always remember the gospel. But these three topics, creation, the image of God, and God's design for human sexuality are fundamental for these next two weeks. And they do contribute to what we call a a biblical theology of humanity and human sexuality, okay? So the first thing is this, creation. Let's look at this text through the lens of creation and what we know about God. Here's the thing about God as creator. God as creator has the first say and the ultimate say. If you create something, you are the one who has the, 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 the freedom and the right to declare how that thing works and to, to be the ultimate authority on it. I say that somewhat um, you know, figuratively for us, but we're, it's ultimate about God. 
that he is created. And as creator, he has the first say in the ultimate say. So often when it comes to arguments about marriage and sexuality, especially just in our, in our modern day, when it comes to arguments about marriage and sexuality, folks that are arguing this want to dive really deeply into the Greek of the New Testament passages and the cultural context of places like Romans and 1 Corinthians and Leviticus. Now, I unapologetically believe that those passages in no way serve as a hindrance, nor are they secondary to the traditional orthodox view of creation, image of God, and human sexuality. Not in any way. Like Those, those texts support the orthodox view of these things. But what I, in another sense, don't, do not misunderstand what I'm saying here. If you misunderstand what I'm saying here, then come talk to me or ask me or just go listen to the last few years of preaching. Don't listen to the first two years because they were really bad. Uh, but just listen to the last few years of preaching. You know where I stand and where I'm at on the scriptures. In another sense, while those, those texts support the orthodox Christian vision for all of these things, in another sense, we don't need them up against the view of just creation in and of itself. And so there's, there's a lot of people who have, who have looked at these texts and said, well, actually, you know, the Greek says this word and the, the culture around this, this isn't, Jesus isn't really, you know, saying that this view is, is wrong. In one sense, we don't really need them. It's like, okay, we'll give it to you. Let's go to creation. Let's go to the, the ultimate message that creation of a sovereign God declares about humanity and sexuality and the image of God. An appeal to creation and the original design of a sovereign creator will take us a long way. Now, we'll preach Romans and 1 Corinthians and Leviticus and say, hey, this is why what scripture speaks here is authoritative and, and does support and does say what we believe the Christian vision and the godly vision of these things are. But these additional, sufficient, inspired, inerrant portions of scripture, they flow from what happened in Genesis chapter one and two. They flow from this foundation that a sovereign creator has created all things and that this is the way he has designed it. This is the way he's created it. You wanna know what God's vision for it is? Look at the opening pages of scripture. Here's, here's an example of that, by the way. Here's an example of, of where the apostle Paul appeals to creation. And so here's the deal. I'm gonna reference this as an example. Today's text is not about what Paul references in 1 Timothy 2, but, it's, but it is an example of appealing to creation. In 1 Timothy 2, 7, when it comes to the conversation and the teaching of Paul on the roles of men and women in the church, where is it that Paul goes? He goes to creation. He ties, he ties his vision and his idea for the, for the, the roles that, that God has created in men and women, not to just some Pauline, new Pauline teaching or new Pauline idea. No, he ties it back to Adam and Eve. He goes all the way back to, this is the way that our sovereign God has created things to work. And that in and of itself is enough. That truth in and of itself is profound for us to realize. And so Paul, again, he had the authority and the apostleship and, and, and what, from what he says, the revelation directly from Christ to state, to state this however he wanted to go about it, yet he goes to Genesis. He goes to Adam and Eve. Study that. 
Study the book of Genesis. Study those opening pages and see the way that God has designed. And the reason why Paul does this, I think, at least one of them, and, and why he, he knows something and why he believes that we should know something is that the creator has the first and final word. So creation, we're pulling to creation now. Creator has the first and final word. How he created things is the way they were intended to function. And God as creator sets the rules, sets the perimeters, not us. That's, that's fundamental to our understanding of, 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 of a God who's created things. God is the creator of humanity. He is the creator of sexuality. And each of the purposes of those things are to serve him and not us. The second thing we're gonna address is the image of God. So we've got creation just in and of itself. God spoke and things were, they came to be. But then in Genesis chapter 126, God says this among the Trinity, what we believe, that the spirit and the son, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God himself says that we as humanity are made in the image of God. We are created in his image. It's the only thing that he declares in creation that bears his image, that is made in his likeness. So humanity, man and woman, was created in the image of God for the glory of God. You don't know why you're created? You were created in the image of God for the glory of God. And so that also means that all God created to do in the garden was intended to bring him glory. Things didn't go so well, did they? Things didn't go so well, did they, in the garden? God created man to, everything he created man to do was intended to bring him glory. Hey, work the ground, you know, do, do these things. Go, go look at all the, essentially the job description of mankind in, in Genesis. It was intended all to just reflect the glory of God among the earth. And that was, that was what God told him to do, be fruitful and multiply. And, and every, all the covenants that he set up was in order that the world may know the glory of God. And so herein lies one of the most egregious parts of what lust is that Jesus is addressing here. The, the egregious, the, really the ultimate egregious act of what lust is, is our attempt for mankind to bring glory and pleasure to ourselves. So man was created to bring God glory. What lust is, is you exist to bring me glory. That's what that that is, it not only deviates from our purpose to glorify God, it not only deviates from our purpose to bring God glory, but it demands and robs other people's purpose to bring glory to God by seeking to get that glory for ourselves. And what happens when we lust after another or seek sexual gratification in any way outside of what God has designed is that, listen, listen to this, this is an important word, is that we objectify what God has created in his image. We turn something that God has created to bring him glory into an object meant to bring ourselves pleasure and glory. Can I just put it real simply? Human beings are not something to be objectified. They're not something to be objectified. They are not something that exists to bring glory or pleasure to yourself. That is not what... The, the, the purpose of humanity is. And so we all in this room know, we're not gonna just dive overly deeply into it, but I think most of us in this room know, and as, I, as I've already done, I've, 
I've been transparent. And so I'm one of these people. We all know in this room what Jesus means here by looking at a woman with lustful intent. By the way, you notice that that's what he says, right? Don't look at a woman with lustful intent. So ladies, you're feeling off the hook, right? You're not off the hook. You're not off the hook. Lust, pornography is as much of an, is something really crazy that, that I did not know is that pornography is as, maybe as much of, if not more of an issue for women than men. But what the text says, Jesus is going after the men here. I think there's a reason for that. We won't, we won't dive into all that or speculate, but the text, Jesus is addressing men. So we all know in this room what Jesus means here by looking at a woman with lustful intent. Um, my, the, the, the pastor of the church that I grew up in, um, the church I grew up in, the pastor there is now my dad, uh, but, the, but the pastor before him um, was one time asked, I think by my dad, his name is Brother Harold, Harold Hodges. Um, Brother Harold Hodges passed probably about 10 years ago. Um, and and when, when Harold Hodges was in his 60s or 70s, uh, my dad, being probably somewhere around my age, asked Brother Hodges, Brother Hodges, like, when does, this, when does this temptation go away? At what point in life does this escape? And Brother Harold Hodges in his 60s or 70s says, I'm not sure, but I'll let you know. I'll let you know when, when that happens. And man, Brother Harold Hodges, like, if, there's a, if there are, you know, like, levels in heaven, he's on the top, Right? But the brother Harold Hodges says in his 60s or 70s, I'm not sure when this temptation and when this, when this fleshly desire in life goes away, but I'll let you know. I'll let you know if I ever get there. And I don't think he ever got there. And so we all know, again, what it means to, to look at a woman with lustful intent. Many in here also know the effect of pornography on the mind and the condition of our society. And so this week as I was studying, I... I you know, I attempted in some way to try to fit in like a, like a whole section in my sermon today on statistics. And I just, they're out there. If you need statistics, we'll, we're gonna share some resources this week via email um, that will, that will, that will um, be a resource to you, whether they're reading, maybe some statistics and things like that. But pornography fundamentally is an affront to the image of God in another human being. That's, that's what it is. It's an objectification of an image bearer of God. And, and, and none of us in here need to know or be convinced of the destructive nature of it. You look at what's going on in the world today, I would say, as far as topics go, fundamentally, one of the, one of the, the most driving things is pornography. Look at the way things are marketed the, the, the connections between, between what we feel is, is just innocent viewership of something like this and, and, and sex trafficking going on in the world, the selling of human beings, they're so closely connected that it's, it's frightening. And so pornography fundamentally is an affront to the image of God in another human being. And there are shocking realities, shocking realities to the presence of porn in our homes and society. There's a lot of parents in here. Hey, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna tell you one of, the thing, one of the things that like 
I'm, I'm asking the Spirit of God to not allow to drive me into just a fearful spiral and despair is, is how accessible it is for my kids, my boys that are, that are eight years old. And man, I've, I've, I have sat with people, I've, I've heard stories, I've read stories about the, the exposure to things like this as young as eight years old. I think statistically, if you go to the, stat, the stats, I think the average age for first exposure is somewhere around 12 or 13. And it, let me just tell you something, it is devastating. Completely ruins the lives of not, again, not just the person who has viewed it, but the, the lives around them. So the third thing that I want us to look at, we've looked at creation, we've looked at the image of God, and we've, we, we, this third thing is human sexuality. Here's something that most of us know in here, at least in theory, sex is really good. You're like, did you just, did you just say that? There's kids in the room. Yeah, kids, it's good. One of the ways that we have gotten this wrong that I, that I will address here, and don't let this, don't, please don't let this, the, the mention of this like serve as a barrier or a hindrance to, to what we're really trying to say, but one of the ways we've gotten this wrong that I will address here is much of the messaging that emerged from, from the purity culture of the 90s and 2000s. Um, did anyone else besides me have a really unhealthy and fearful view of sex as a teenager? Even, even upon entering marriage? Just an just a unhealthy and fearful, I don't know, maybe, maybe that doesn't relate to you. But I'll tell you, it, it relates to a lot of people. So we're not gonna dive into all the failures of that movement. By the way, there are cultural, there, there are dangers, cultural, spiritual dangers in the way that many have swung to the exact opposite extreme. Can I just like from here say, even though this isn't popular in a lot of like the progressive, you know, theology things like, hey, modesty is good. Modesty is godly. It's good, it's holy. Ladies, modesty is good. Men, modesty is good, okay? So, let me, so there's, there's a danger of, of swinging so far to the exact opposite extreme of, man, I can just wear whatever I want and you better just keep your hands off me, okay? Now, that's, that's a reality. We're gonna talk about some of the, the realities of abuse even next week and, and some, of those, some of those things. But there's, there's a danger there when we swing to that side. But oftentimes, as a result of the messaging that came from these, this purity culture thing, sex was talked about as a nasty or a dangerous or a shameful thing. And let me just say, this is as unbiblical and ungodly as the perverse ways that we have dealt with this topic. It's, it's ungodly. Nowhere in the scriptures is it spoken of in this, in this nasty, dangerous way. Church family, Jesus addresses what he addresses here in this text, not because sex is bad or dangerous, but, is, but because it is beautiful and powerful. It's a beautiful and powerful thing. And his design, let me just say this, his design in all things, everything that he tells you to flee from and to run away from, is never regressive or repressive. It's not ever old school. It's not ever archaic, ever. But it's always for the flourishing of humanity. It's always for the flourishing of mankind. Jesus addresses this here, not because it's dangerous or bad, because it's beautiful and powerful. Let me just say that, that it's a gift from God and it in a profound way reveals something to us about God. 
Let's move on to verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In case you're wondering, Jesus is always more serious about our righteousness than we are. He's always more serious about our sin than we are. But guess what? He's also more committed to your sanctification than you are. You wanna grow as a child of God? Let me just tell you something. Nobody wants you to grow into the image of his son more than God does. And so Jesus is always more serious about your sin. He's always more serious about our righteousness and our, our, and our obedience. And while we sit around and figure out how in the world we ought to manage our sin and figure out how we figure out what exactly we're willing to abandon, Christ goes to the cross for it. We sit around, we, we try to figure out how to manage this. You know, the way that one person says it, we, we continually clean the cobwebs out of the corner in our life when what God's calling us to do is to kill the spider. Quit just cleaning out the cobwebs, kill the spider. And Jesus, in a way, is saying that. Jesus dies for our sin so that we may put our sin to death, not simply manage it and not simply flirt with it. He not only goes to the cross for our sin, but he always calls for a higher level of commitment than our flesh is willing to give. And that's what he's saying here in this text. First off, Jesus goes after in this text what is deemed most useful and necessary, the right hand and the right eye. I don't know all the, I don't know all the, the, the details, but there's a reason why he says right hand. All you left-handers are feeling, feeling either good or left out. But there's some significance and intentionality in Jesus using the right eye and the right hand. If I can summarize it, essentially because it, it would have been deemed most useful and necessary. And he goes after those by using extreme language of cutting your right hand off or tearing out your right eye. And so here's the deal. At first you read this, and you're like, of course he's not being literal. I don't know. I've kind of, as I've, got, as I've gotten more and more, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna present only the literal solution for this, but, it, but I, I, don't, I'm, I don't know. I'm not gonna be the one necessarily to say that. I don't think he's being literal. I think he's using some, some hyperbole and some exaggeration here. But, but what, he, what he is saying is, what he's addressing is what is, maybe for us application-wise, what is the tool of profound need and usefulness in your life? What is the tool or the resource in your life of profound usefulness? Is it a job where an inappropriate relationship may be growing or brewing? There's no way I'd get rid of my job. Just, man, I'll just, I'll just do better tomorrow, right? Jesus says, maybe Jesus says, get rid of the job. You're like, surely he's not calling me to do that. Well, Jesus does tell us to take up our cross and to follow him, right? He does say if anyone loves his life, he may, may lose his life. If he wants to follow me. So maybe, I'll, I'll put that out there. I'll be the bad guy. Maybe it's, maybe it's some sort of device that, that you are, that is, that is of profound need and usefulness for your job. Maybe you rely on a particular device for your work and your income. Jesus possibly couldn't be telling me to get rid of that, right? Maybe. 
He, he, he very well might be. Maybe it's a relationship. Man, surely Jesus isn't telling me to, to cut this relationship out of my life. He might be. So Jesus may not literally intend for you to begin cutting off body parts, but he literally means that there may be things in your life that you need to begin cutting out of your life for the sake of your soul. That's what he's he's saying here. He says what he says about body parts and hell because of that very thing. I think better to be unemployed now than to spend eternity in hell. Better to say goodbye to that relationship that you have just fallen in love with now than to spend an eternity in hell. I think that's some of what he may be saying here. He's saying this has eternal (coughs) implications. He's saying this this has real, eternal, soul, deep implications. And there are things that may need to be removed in order for you to walk in the life that I've called you to live and to spend the eternity where you wanna spend it. You, you cannot walk in darkness and be in the light. So another thing that we must acknowledge based on the context of Christ's teaching, I think, is that you don't simply need to cut out what's responsible for your sin. You need a transformed and renewed heart. That's what it is. Hey, let me just tell you, we're like, we're, we're really good sin creators, right? I mean, we, we figure out how to, how to get around it, right? Like we've all, you know, a lot of people have had the software on their stuff and you know how to, you know how to get around that. You're a kid of the nineties, right? Like, you know how to get around that, those things. I, th- I think what's most important, what's most vital is not only that we remove things that are standing in the way of our holiness, but that we ask God to transform and renew our minds and our hearts. You need that. Guys, this is, this is why we've got to take repentance seriously. I've, I've, I've wondered, what's the role of repentance in the life of a Christian? Well, I don't need to look any further than the presence of sin that's still in my life as a Christian. I need to repent of that. Not in order that I may be saved because Christ has started and finished that work in me, but there is still indwelling sin in my life that I must bring before the Lord and say, Lord, I repent of this. And maybe, maybe you just kind of lived lackadaisically in this area for a long time, but let me, just, let me just say, like, God may be calling you to repent of something. I wrote today's message a little bit backwards. I began with the hope and the encouragement up front. I, 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 moved, I told somebody last night, like I, I kind of, I moved that around a couple times. I, I started with it up front, I moved it to the end, and then I was like, no, we're just gonna keep it up front. Don't forget what we established at the beginning because we're, we're kind of landing here in a heavy place. I'm not gonna rehash everything that, that, I, that I said, but please don't forget what I shared earlier about the hope that we have. At the same time, it's not always my goal or my job to leave us feeling great and peppy. This is, this is heavy stuff. Jesus kind of concludes this section in this way. Hey, the last word that he says in this section is hell. Like, well, that's not the way that you need to wrap something up. But just as I began this sermon with hope in the gospel reality that you can experience freedom and the mercy of God in this area, I want to close with a helpful and hopeful step that we are given from the book of James. So maybe you're feeling the heaviness of this. James, in 
chapter 5, verse 16 through verse 18. If you want, you can turn there. James 5, 16 through 18. James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Did you hear that? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let's read verse 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I don't know what all that means, but what, what I do know is that Jesus is gracious in actually giving us some helpful and hopeful counsel in this. We talked about that a few weeks ago. He not only teaches us what's right and wrong, he counsels us in how we are to approach these things in our life. And what the word says here is to confess your sins. That's a command, by the way. Maybe you're thinking, there's no way I could command. Well, then ask the Lord to give you a heart of obedience and to confess your sins to one another. And then he follows it up with hope. Because if you confess your sins one to another, the, 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 you may be healed from this. And so just know that you can be healed from this, whether you're the offender or you're the one who's been offended. You can be healed. This is not the unpardonable sin. The gospel is real and is for these moments and for these sins. We have a great need for a savior. Thankfully, we have a great savior for our need. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just pray that your spirit would comfort us in this moment. Uh, we feel the, the weight and the reality of this. And, and we just pray, Lord, that you, um, by your spirit, would comfort those who are your children. Lord, we know that your spirit not only comforts, your spirit convicts. And so, Lord, may, may, we, not, may we not ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit. May we not ignore that. Lord, would you help us to, to hear and to sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit? And so, Lord, I pray that, that we would, would, would understand and experience the reality of the, of the good news of the gospel today, that Christ has died for sinners, and not just in some general sense, but that while we were sinners, while we were in the act of sin, Christ even then gave his life for us. So fathers, we come to this table. Lord, we approach this table not routinely. And if that's the case, Lord, convict our hearts of turning it into routine. It's not the way you've created it to be viewed. And so Lord, help us approach the table with humility, with gladness, with joy, and with confidence that you have forgiven us through your son, Jesus. We love you, Father. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.